we are here to glorify you. At the end of the day, Lord, my hope and my prayer is that every action that we ever take would be to glorify you. But Lord, we do put special significance on what we do here in this place as this body of gathered people. So we thank you that you have blessed this offering of worship that we have brought to you so far today. We ask that you would continue to bless it now, Lord God, as we continue to worship you and to reflect on your word. We love you. We lift this up to you in your son's holy name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, hello, everyone. Is it still? Yes, good morning. Okay, it's still morning. I have to keep track sometimes. It's, it's, our son insists on, I mentioned this before, but the fact that he insists on starting his day at four in the morning kind of throws me off for when I'm at during the rest of the day. Just very different starting point than I used to have. I found myself longing the other day that I could just stay up until midnight doing something, and then I realized that just won't be my life for a good long while. But he's napping right now, so praise the Lord for that. No one clap. No one clap. He's napping. There we go. Okay. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Taylor. I really appreciate you all being here today. It's, it's a blessing to have you. I know it's not always easy to get here, especially when, when the weather decides to be what I think of as, as wonderful and very seasonally appropriate and others find very bothersome, such as the faculty member in the history department who decided the day right before it started snowing was a great day to take his snow tires off his car because we figured we were done for the season. So, you know, prayers for him as you would offer them. Uh, I want to start things off a little bit differently than I tend to today. We're continuing in our series on prayer that we're calling Pray First. But I want to start off today with a story. It just so happens to be true. There was once a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, and his first name, Dietrich, is actually where we got William's middle name. Uh, his, his full name is, is William Dietrich Smith. And we did that because we wanted William to be connected to somebody from history uh, who had a story that demonstrated what, what Sarah and I thought it, it meant to really glorify God. And Bonhoeffer was, was a, a Protestant minister who lived through the rise of the Nazi Third Reich in Germany in the middle of the 20th, kind of the early to middle 20th century. And, and what he saw in the 1930s going into the 1940s, he saw German churches buy into, go over to, the Nazi message, embrace their, their racism, their hatred, their, their sheer evil, because they decided at the end of the day that it was more important to, to be a strong German than it was to be a true Christian. Bonhoeffer, refusing to go along with this, he, he helped start a movement that we remember as the Confessing Church. That's what it was called. It was an organization of, of congregations and pastors who refused to sign these Nazi loyalty oaths that were being brought around and demanded of these Christian churches, and instead, the confessing church committed itself to, to promoting the, the actual, the biblical gospel, despite the rise of the Nazi regime. And this church, the confessing church, because it refused to capitulate, to go along with the Nazis, it was forced underground. Its leaders, including Bonhoeffer, they, they were hunted and harassed by the SS, the German secret police. And other leaders in the church, they thought Bonhoeffer was too important to die at the hands of the Nazis, because that's what was happening to these church leaders. And so they, they urged him, they begged him, and finally they convinced him to go to the United States and wait out the war. These ministers were confident that Germany was eventually going to lose, but they didn't want Bonhoeffer to die while they were waiting for that to happen. So they convinced him to leave to the United States. But Bonhoeffer could not 
handle what he thought of as his time in exile. This, this time in which he was separated from his people in Germany. He couldn't bear the thought of his brothers and sisters in Christ dying while he sat safely in the United States. Because he cared more about being united with the Lord's faithful people than he did about his own safety. And ultimately, he cared about more being he cared more about being united with the Lord's people than he did his own life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer he returned to Germany, where he actually, by some relationships he was in, participated in a plot to to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Make of that what you will, but he was committed to ending what he saw as evil in the world. As a result of the failure of this plot, he was arrested by the SS, he was held in the Flossenburg concentration camp, and he was executed less than a month before the Nazis surrendered, after the Soviets took Berlin. Now, why do I share this story? Well, first, because I think it's important that we remember the lives of those faithful servants of Jesus who have come before us. That's not just because I'm a historian. It's because I think regardless of who we are or what we find interesting, this can be inspiring to us. In Hebrews, it talks about this great cloud of witnesses that, that can encourage and, and be models for our faith. And it's talking about figures in the Old Testament, but I wonder if this cloud hasn't had some people added to it over the years. Bonhoeffer reminds us what it looks like to choose our allegiance to God and his people over any other identity, any other title, any other creed. But second, and, and more directly relevant to what we're talking about today, Bonhoeffer lives on through his published writings. And he has some thoughts that, that I think are interesting to consider in light of what we're going to be talking about today. Because today I want to investigate in this series that we're doing on prayer how we can pray so that we might be unified as the people of God. And Bonhoeffer had, had some interesting thoughts that, that relate to this topic. In Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, it's considered kind of a modern classic. I encourage you to read it. I warn you, it's very, very dense. Uh, if you're in for a really dense, thick read that was translated from German, a language where they take one word that when you try to translate it into English, it literally becomes a paragraph because they do this thing where they just cram words into one word. They're allowed to do that, I guess. If, if you're willing to dig through a thick, dense read, I encourage you, it is certainly worth it. Bonhoeffer in Cost of Discipleship, he discussed what he believed was necessary for us to relate with each other, which I think you would agree it's a central part of being unified. We can't be unified without actually relating with each other on some level. Now, when we imagine a conversation and on a deeper level, an actual relationship, we, we think of, you know, I, I would walk up to, to Doug and I would talk with Doug and we would exchange words and we would maybe encourage each other and share lives and share hardships and, and we would relate. We would have a conversation, and maybe from that conversation and other conversations, a relationship could form. All of that adds up to a relationship. Bonhoeffer disagreed with that idea. As Bonhoeffer saw things, true relationship, actual interpersonal interaction between human beings was only possible because of Jesus. Without Jesus serving as a mediator, this is how Bonhoeffer saw things. Without Jesus serving as a mediator, there was no way that me and another person could overcome each of our mutual sin to actually relate with each other. 
that the only way we could have a real connection as two humans is if we recognize the mediating role that Jesus was playing. And this is because, as Bonhoeffer saw things, our truest self only emerges in a relationship with God. Because we were created in God's image, because there is something of him in all of us, we can only be our truest selves when we recognize that he's there. It's only when we recognize the presence of Jesus that we are actually ourselves. Therefore, without Jesus, we are not actually relating. Without Jesus, without the presence of Jesus, without recognizing the presence of Jesus, say Ben and I, while we think we're having a conversation, aren't actually talking to each other. We're talking to these weird, muddled versions of ourselves, or there's something of God in there, but there's also our, our sin and our wrongdoing, and the separation of this broken world that comes between us. We're not actually relating. Like I said, this is a very dense book. I'm pulling all of everything I just said from like a paragraph that I had to read five or six times. I'm not that great at reading to begin with, so we'll see how you do with it. But trying to boil this down, according to Bonhoeffer, true relationship is only possible when Jesus functions as a mediator between people. Now, I'm still working on this. I just read it a few days ago. I don't know if I agree with this 100%, but I think it's a very, very interesting idea and one that's worth considering. What would it look like for me to acknowledge the necessity of Jesus' presence for me to have any kind of real connection with another person? How would it change how I relate to people if I literally could not communicate without first recognizing the presence of Jesus? How would that change how I pray? If I needed Jesus present for me to even have the simplest interaction with other people, something that is vital to my life and to every human life, if I needed Jesus' presence for even the simplest interaction to happen, how would that change how I pray? Something to think on. One place where I am certainly inclined to agree with Bonhoeffer is in regard to any gathering of God's people, like this one or any kind of gathering that would, that would style itself as, as a church, as an assemblage of the Lord's people. I am fully convinced that without recognizing and shaping our interaction around the presence of Jesus, any attempt by Christians to unify, to come together and do anything, is a profound waste of time. I thoroughly agree with Bonhoeffer on that point. Without recognizing and molding our interaction around the presence of Jesus, any assemblage of Christians is wasting their time. Unity is much harder than we might think. It takes more effort than we might think. It's not as simple as just sitting in a room together or uh, declaring our, our allegiance with a certain body of people. Unity is more complicated than that. And because it's more complicated, I think it is very important that we seek God's wisdom regarding how our prayer can contribute to the ability for us to unify as a people. Because that was, after all, Jesus' explicit desire for us. If you've got a Bible, open up to John 17. 
John, if, if you're not familiar, is, is the fourth book in the New Testament. The New Testament is kind of the last third of your Bible. John's the fourth book in. And, and John, if I can play favorites with the Gospels, which is sometimes a dangerous thing to do, I think John is my favorite. Uh, the Gospels are narratives of Jesus' life. They are separate but congruent they have differences, but they agree with each other as to who Jesus was and what that means for our lives. And most of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three, they start off with this, it's an essential narrative of here's how Jesus' ministry got started. You know, it's a basic narrative of some of the early things of, of Jesus' either life with his birth or with his ministry. John starts with this line, in the beginning was the word. I feel like I should have, like, I don't know, some kind of beat poet thing going on right now. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on like this, and I just love it because it's got this, this beautiful creativity, this, this freedom of, of thought to present the gospel in such an intriguing way, and it shows that John understood his audience. The Gospel of John was predominantly written to Greek believers, people with these kind of philosophical backgrounds who would appreciate an opening to a book that sounded like John may or may not have been on something. We don't have good historical evidence to determine whether or not that was the case. But this was a way in which he could relate to his audience by speaking this kind of philosophical language. While I'm here, I want to plug a couple books real quick that relate to this. There are two books that I think are really, really useful if you are in a spot where you want to get to know a little bit better what's in Scripture and the best way to read it so that you can understand its meaning in the past and its meaning now. These are two wonderful books written by the same pair of people. Uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, which I have a copy of if you want to borrow, and How to Read the Bible Book by Book. These are just, they're not seminary textbooks or anything like that. They're really useful tools to help you get to know Scripture a little bit better so that maybe you can help a friend get to know Scripture a little bit better. Uh, if you're interested in borrowing that one, let me know. I have my copy, and otherwise they're, they're readily available from a variety of sources. Anyway, my, my book plug is now over. I promise I get nothing from doing those. They were written, I think, before I was alive. Uh, but anyway, uh, in John 17, we find Jesus praying, which is fitting for our series. But more importantly, we find him praying immediately before he was betrayed by his disciple Judas and executed on the cross. This is the last interaction that Jesus had alone with his disciples before he went and was murdered. This is the last prayer that he offered before his disciples. Which makes me wonder, how would you pray you knew that you were about to leave the people you loved most in the world and go to your death. This is how Jesus prayed in that moment. This is a long passage, but as I was putting this together, it did not feel appropriate for me to, in this moment of Jesus' life, say, okay, Lord, this is what seems most useful for my message right now. I felt like I needed to let Jesus speak his peace and pray what it is that he actually prayed in this moment. I encourage you to remember what I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. God can always teach us more than one thing. I am going to draw particular things out of this passage. I'm going to emphasize certain things. That doesn't mean the Lord can't say something particular to you from this. So while it might go on for a little while, I encourage you, listen to what the Lord would say. 
This is Jesus praying, starting off in about halfway through verse 1 in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's speaking of Judas. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I in them. There's a lot in this prayer. More than we can hope to cover right now. I encourage you to, to go back into it on your own. 
again, and then again if you feel the need to, and then again if you want to, and then again because it's just a good thing to do. Think long and hard on what our Lord asked for his followers in his final moments on earth. Jesus was very, very aware of the moment he was in when he prayed this prayer, so we should pay special attention to it. For now, I want to highlight a recurring theme. It comes up multiple times in this passage. I'm going to highlight a couple instances. In verse 11, that they may be one, even as we are one. And again, in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Even as he prayed all of these various things, even as Jesus is trying somehow to to compact all of his desires for his disciples and for the world into this one prayer in his final moments on earth, Jesus knew that he needed to pray that we would be unified. And let me be clear. This is not just unity for the sake of unity. We are not unified for the sake of unity which is what I think we often pursue in the American church. We often put on displays of what I think somebody could call defensive unity. We know that a common accusation against the American church is the fact that it's, that it's ruptured, that it's fractured, that there's all these divisions throughout it. This isn't just the American church. It's a problem around the world, but it's an especially big problem here in our country. And the accusation goes something like this. You might have heard it. Somebody saying, why should I listen to anything about Christianity when the Christians can't even seem to figure it out? They're so divided amongst themselves. Why should I listen to what they have to say? And I think that's a fair accusation. The vision we see in Revelation of the whole church worshiping together in front of the throne of God is not what we have on earth. And I hope God will forgive us for that. I know that God is gracious. I know that he's gracious with us as as we, just people, are trying to figure out how to worship him in this world. He is so profoundly beyond us, and we, compared to him, are so small. I know that he is gracious to us as we try to figure things out, but I, I hope he'll forgive us for that. And when we try to address this accusation, we, we put on these displays of unity. And I want to be clear, I'm not making a qualitative statement about these things. I'm just recognizing them. Things like multi-church gatherings or, or pastor's conferences or, or what have you. I don't know if these are good or not. I think sometimes they're good. I think sometimes maybe it would be better to do something else. I don't know for sure. But I don't think they are necessarily the intended result of unity that Jesus had in mind when he prayed this prayer that we've recorded in John 17. I think Jesus was undeniably clear on his desire for what unity of the Lord's people should produce. Going back to verse 22 now. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And we're finishing the verse now. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. And and this theme that there is an outward intention 
to unity, that our unity isn't just for our sake, but it is to be outward-oriented, runs throughout Scripture. One passage I happened to come across as I was getting ready for this, out of Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We unify as the people of God for one principal reason. To glorify the name of Jesus so that the world may know him. It's not for us. It's not to defend the reputation of the American church. It's not to defend God's reputation, which if you're worried, let me reassure you, he has well in hand. The Lord can handle his own reputation. The purpose of unity is to spread the name of Jesus to those who do not know him. We unify to make the name of Jesus known to those who do not know it so that this world may be more like what God intended. So that things would be, to quote another of our Lord's prayers, on earth as they are in heaven. Top of all that, this is the only reliable way to ultimately solve the innumerable problems facing this world. back? Cool. Thank you. The only way to reliably address these innumerable problems facing the world is by helping more people follow Jesus. That is how we get heaven. That is how we get things to be on earth as they are in heaven. I debated how I wanted to deliver this next section as, as I was preparing it. Because I know how to be a, a fiery Pentecostal minister when I need to be, you know, that with some of the table pounding and trying to give that energy that just hits you in your socks and just launches you up out of your chair. I don't know if you've ever been around those kinds of preachers that just get you going. I've been around enough of them to know how to try to be one. And I thought, is this how I want to deliver this message? As, as this surging rallying cry? Because there's something to that. Then I also thought there is also a great deal of power in simply speaking something as truth. Letting it be the, the quiet, humble truth of our God. And I decided more towards that latter point. The more people who follow Jesus, the less greed there will be in this world. Which means less fraud, less exploitation, less labor and sex slavery. It means poverty and starvation can finally end. There are good things that we can do right now to help pursue those good and godly goals. But ultimately, what will change things if more people are following Jesus and living as Jesus in this world? The more people who follow Jesus, the less rage and loneliness and pain and fear there will be. 
which means we don't have to wake up hearing about 15 more dead kids, or 10 more dead kids, or five more dead kids, or one more dead kid. There are good things that we can do now to help advance those good and godly goals. But if we really want to see the world rid of these things, it will require more people following Jesus and living as Jesus in this world. That's what can ultimately, permanently address so much of the hardship that we see around us. This is why we pray to be unified. So that we might make God known to those who do not know him, because first and foremost, he deserves to be glorified. That should be reason enough. God deserves to be glorified. And because it's the only way this world can ever really get back to the beautiful, loving, holy creation that it was intended to be. Any inkling, any speck of disunity amongst the Lord people, of Lord's people, is a distraction from this singular purpose. And what we have to do is too important to ever be hampered by rifts between God's people. So we need to talk. We need to be ministers of reconciliation, which is what 2 Corinthians calls us to be. We need to have the hard conversations. We need to ask the conversations that we are afraid to. We need to ask the questions that we're afraid to ask. We need to involve the mediators that we need to involve so those conversations can happen safely and productively. We need to talk. And if necessary, we need to repent. If you are a source of disunity, gossip, of strife. Repent. God is not pleased by that. And pray. Pray that we would be unified, not for our sake. Not for the sake of, of one nation's church, but so that God may, so, so the world may know God and glorify Him. As we pursue this goal, of becoming more and more and more unified each day. This isn't a switch that we flick. This is something that we pray and passionately pursue. As we pursue this goal each day, I want to propose an, an action step that you can take now. And, and, and this is in closing. I want to propose this action step. It's something I've mentioned before, but I think it's important to help us fulfill the purpose of unity, to help us glorify God so that the world might know him more. I want to invite you to start coming to church on someone else's behalf. It is okay to come here and find encouragement and friendship and support and love and camaraderie. It's more than okay. It's an incredible gift that we get to, to celebrate and enjoy. And I enjoy it every single time I come here. I am so blessed that me and Sarah and our son can have a community that provides us with this love and support and camaraderie. But on top of that, I wonder if you would join me in this prayer. We talk about in this series, we don't want to just talk about prayer, we actually want to pray. Well, it's brief today, but I wonder if you would join me in this prayer. God, as I unite with your people to glorify your name, give me something I can bring to those who do not know you that they may know you more. I don't know what that'll be. 
it might be a piece of a message. It might be a, a passage of Scripture. It might be a prophetic word that the, that the Holy Spirit gives you for that person. It might be a gift of healing that you could bring to someone. It might be a story about how your church family was there for you in a hard moment and how that made all the difference. Whatever it turns out to be, I pray that you will seek it. So that as we unify, we would fulfill the true purpose of unity. To glorify God so the world might know him more. I think we'll go ahead and close with one more song. If you want to go ahead and stand, we'll worship.